Well, good morning. morning. Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning as we continue on in our series through the book of Daniel. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, We're glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. Uh, Daniel chapter 6 is where we'll be uh, as we've been preaching through the book of Daniel. It's good to be back this morning. It's been three weeks since I was in the pulpit here at FC Cubed, Uh, and so it's a Welcome, a welcome opportunity to be back with you this morning. Three weeks, actually, I was looking the longest I've been gone in a row in the past six years. So this building, it's the longest that's gone without me up here um, for three weeks. And so probably good for the building and good for our group. But uh, two weeks gets me really antsy. So three weeks, man, I'm just excited to be back here with you guys and to walk through uh, the book of Daniel. I uh, went to Florida with my family and had a nice vacation there. And then when I got back, spent some time, uh, kind of locked myself in a room working on my thesis. And so I'm, I'm working towards my master's degree, almost finished with it. And uh, for the past few weeks, I've been kind of single-mindedly focused on a uh, dead guy and what he wrote in Greek uh, about what other people who are dead wrote in Greek. And so I've kind of immersed myself in that. Um, and so it's nice to be back among the living, right, and to have some good conversation. So I'm studying a guy named Cyril of Alexandria, uh, this 4th and 5th century theologian. And, and you know it gets bad when you're at Kroger and you're like, I wonder what Cyril would think about that, right? I mean, it's good to kind of relax and get back in the groove with, with other things that are happening. So Daniel 6, uh, we have a great text this morning, a great story. Um, hopefully you're most of you are familiar with it. It's Daniel in the Lion's Den. Okay, so yeah, we're going through the veggie tales, okay, in your mind. Um, now, <clears throat> as I have been working, okay, as I've been writing my thesis and, and reading, again, these, these really, really old guys and these really, really old words, one of the things that's, that's been occurring to me over and over and over again is how smart some of them were. And how much wisdom and beauty and insight some of them have. And so, so I've been reading and then writing and reading and then writing and reading and then writing. And every now and then I have to like stop and just sit back. And I'm kind of overwhelmed by the, the amount of, of, of gospel and good news and some of the stuff they wrote. And by the insight that they had into what the scriptures meant, into the depths of God's love for us. And I, I just had a helpful reminder, right, that, that you and I aren't the first to do this. And you and I, it's not up to us necessarily to come up with all the answers. In fact, some of the answers have already been found for us. And, and there's so much truth to be learned from the past. And, and as we read Daniel 6 this morning, one of the things I, I, I've discovered as I've studied it is, is not only is this an important text to you and I, right? Not only do we have our VeggieTales versions, right? And, and we kind of tell these stories for our kids. But throughout all of church history, this has been a very important text. Um, so, in fact, from very early on, the earliest Christian catacombs. So this is, um, the earliest Christians would meet in these kind of tombs. Um, that's where they met for worship when they had to go underground and that's where they buried their loved ones. Um, when we dig up these catacombs, what we find are paintings of Daniel and the lines. And in fact, I've got a copy of the painting. Uh, one of them they found if, uh, the music room is going to throw that up for me behind me. I don't know if they can hear me or listening right now. Um, they may or may not. Okay. Uh, but at some point during the sermon, it might come up behind me. Um, but they, they find these, these, these drawings on the cave walls, right? I mean, it was, it was just this important story um, to the early church. And, and Christian preachers and thinkers and writers throughout history have talked about it and explored it and things of that nature. What I want to do this morning, we're going to spend two weeks on Daniel 6. So much like we did for Daniel 3 with the fiery furnace, we'll spend two weeks trying to explore the depths of the story. What I want to do this morning is kind of an experiment, okay? I want to look backwards and see what other preachers and other theologians and other people in church history have said about Daniel 6. 
I want to see what, what they've gotten out of Daniel 6. When they read the story of Daniel and the lion's den, what, what have they come up with? And so, in fact, this morning, I'm pleased to be able to introduce you to four good friends. Here we go behind me, okay? This is on the, the wall of one of these caves, these catacombs they dig up. You see Daniel, you see the lions there. Um, it's just this early symbol of worship to the early Christians, right? I mean, right from the get-go, they found in this story something powerful. And so I'm going to introduce you to four um, church, church fathers throughout history, and, and we'll just look at how they interpreted the text, right? And I, and I kind of want to let it stand on its own, and we'll see four lessons. Each one of them will have a lesson to teach us out of Daniel 6. And then uh, next week, we'll go through Daniel 6, and I'll kind of meekly add my voice, right, to the group, and, and I'll kind of give you my offering on Daniel 6. But this morning... I just want to look at what other people have done, and we'll maybe learn a, a couple of fun things along the way um, about church history, about the people, and, and, and things that have come before us. Now, I do think it's important to look at church history. This is one of the things I'm discovering as I continue to, to work and grow in my education. Um, it's important to know what's gone on before us. I've called on your worship guide the, the great story of the church, remembering the great story of the church. Um, and I think it's, it's vitally important for you and I. Um, for us to be faithful and to be the kind of people God has called us to be, to know the story, to know the history of what's gone on before us. So I've got three reasons here as we get started why it might be important to know church history. The first one is it's encouraging. It's encouraging. The first reason why it's important to remember the great story of the church. I know for myself, it's encouraging to me to realize that I'm not the first one trying to do this. When I try to follow Christ, when I try to obey him, when I try to serve him, when I fail miserably, right? All of those things, I'm not the first one. I can look back at this great line of people who have already kind of paved the way for me. I I read an author this week who said this, the gospel has momentum behind it. Does that make sense? For 2,000 years, this thing has been happening. It's been going. It's it's been moving. It's been creating. And, And you and I, we often think of our relationship with God and it's kind of existential experience where it's ahistorical, has nothing to do with history or society. It's just me and God in this moment right now. When in fact, before you even knew about Jesus, he had risen and the spirit was moving. And there was a church, a powerful church doing powerful things in his name. And and when you were converted, what happened is you didn't create a new situation in the world. You joined something that already existed. You joined a group of people that already existed. You joined a movement that already existed. You joined the gospel working itself out among people. As um, Hebrews would say, there's this great cloud of witnesses for you and I. So that we can be encouraged and we can, we can um, keep running the race faithfully. And the second reason, it's encouraging. The second reason why it's important, I think, to remember this great story is it's wise. There's a lot of things we can learn from the past. Right? What's the, the axiom? If you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. Right? I mean, if you don't, if you don't know the, the, the mistakes that have happened in the past, you, you're going you're gonna to continue to produce them. You're going to continue to kind of repeat those mistakes. Um, one of the reasons maybe why we, we try not to think about the church before us is because they've made some mistakes. Maybe there's some stains on, on the history of the church, some places where we've fallen. But if you think about it, that's what it means to be part of a family, right? That's what it means to be part of a history, part of a community. If your family is anything like mine, if you go far enough back in the family tree, you'll find thieves and robbers and, and alcoholics and people who commit suicide. And, and there's all these kind of things, good and bad, in the family tree. And, and as, as, as a family member, we don't ignore those things, right? We embrace them as part of our story, and we learn from those mistakes. We say, well, if this was happening in the past, I'll know to watch out for it now. I'll, I'll be able to break those cycles, those kind of things. That's what is important for us to do as the church. And then there are all these lessons that we can learn. Um, a lot of the things we bicker about today as Christians have already been bickered about. 
right? And there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's lessons to be learned from, from what the uh, church has done before us. And then the third one, I think this is so important. Um, it reinforces our identity. It reinforces our identity as the church. If you've come here for any length of time, you'll know that one of the things I think is so important and I think we've missed in our kind of Christian culture is the sense of belonging to the church. The sense of being connected in this, this um, filial, this family sort of way to each other, to people who believe. To where our identity is found in this community. Above and beyond any other identities that we might have. I think we've missed that in our kind of hyper-individualism. It's just about, again, me and God, and we don't have this community, and I think this creates a very unhealthy kind of Christian life. And so um, our students, our next generation, right, we teach them American history pretty well. I mean, we, we pound that in them, American history, American history. And you teach them world history, right, because you want them to know what's happening. You want them to be a part of this great story. Um, what I think we need to start doing as a church, and particularly with our next generation, is start teaching them church history, What's the story that you're a part of as a Christian? Where, where has it been? Where, where have they gone? What have they done? What decisions have they made? As Americans, we celebrate presidents that have gone before us, their birthdays, big events in history, things of that nature. Did you know the church actually has a calendar that they've had for, for a long time? And on the church calendar, there are different days to celebrate saints and to celebrate martyrs who have gone before us. Why? Because this is... The church's time, the body of Christ's time to say, this is who's gone before us. This is what they've done. These are the examples they've set for us. And so, um, again, I, I just, I'm not sure that there's much more we could do for our next generation than try to start reinforcing that identity. You belong to a new group of people created in Christ. Um, I can't, I've never gotten past that question that Jesus asked Paul in Acts when he's been persecuting the church. He comes to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul goes, oh, I wasn't doing anything to you. <laughs> I was doing it to your people. He goes, no, 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 if you did it to me, if you did it to those people, you did it to me. And I remember gotten past this idea that, that if, if we don't treat each other right, if I hurt you or you hurt me, if we can't live in this kind of um, peaceful community that Jesus intended, one day we might have to answer some tough questions to him. There's a sense of family and belonging that I think it's, it's helpful to have as you and I um, journey on this Christian life. So four people will introduce this morning as we walk through. And again, four lessons we'll get uh, as we look at how they've read Daniel 6. So I'm excited to explore this with you. Let's read, though, together Daniel 6. We'll pick up in verse 1. And as we read, we'll, we'll kind of stop along the way and uh, introduce a new character and uh, see what he had to say about the book of Daniel. So Daniel 6, we'll pick up in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with no regard with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they found the weak spot, right? I mean, he's blameless right now, but we know if he has to choose between the kingdom or being obedient to his Lord, he'll choose his Lord. And we can trap him there. So verse 6, Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance, an enforce, an injunction. 
that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, will be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king established the injunction and signed the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So real famously, um, back then they had this, this kind of, um, they had set up their system of law to where um, you couldn't revoke a law that had just been made in place by kings for various political reasons. And so once you made kind of a decree, you were kind of stuck in it, even if you didn't like the consequences. And so there's this plan to get Daniel to trap him, and they go to the king, they convince him to make a law for 30 days, pray to me. So Darius is not saying you have to forget all your other gods. He's just saying, why don't we take 30 days to remember how awesome I am, right? Focus your devotion on me. Realize that I'm the beginning and the end of your life, right? I control everything. I give you health and peace and security. You can go back to your gods in a month, but for 30 days, let's dedicate myself, right? So he gives this law, pray for me for 30 days. Verse 10, we'll see Daniel's reaction. This is interesting. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Babylon. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the, law, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Okay, we'll stop there. I want to introduce you to our first church father this morning, okay? You'll see his name on the worship guide. I spelled them all out for you. I thought about making those blanks, but I didn't, okay? Um, so our, our first church father is a guy named Hippolytus. All right, say that with me, Hippolytus. Hippolytus. Don't call him Hippo. Okay, he does not like that. Um, Hippolytus is our first uh, church father that we'll be uh, getting to know this morning. He's from Rome, and he lived um, very early on in the church's history. So he was born around 170 A.D. and died around 230 A.D., okay? So a couple hundred years after the life and career of Christ. Um, and he was a very influential early Christian. So um, Hippolytus was a disciple of a guy named Irenaeus. If you know much about church history, you might have heard that name before. Irenaeus was a disciple of a guy named Polycarp who was a disciple of a guy named John. Sound familiar? Yeah, he wrote some books of the Bible. He was a disciple of Christ. So the important point there is Hippolytus can trace back his teachers to someone who was actually taught by Jesus. And in the early church, this made you kind of a big deal, right? I mean, I had this kind of apostolic tradition. I had this succession. I knew the guy who knew the guy who knew the guy, right? So what I'm saying is true. They talked to him. It's been carried down um, through generations. There's no mistakes here. And Hippolytus died as a martyr. Now, what's interesting about him is throughout time, he becomes known as the patron saint of horses for the church, okay? Um, for various different reasons, um, he starts to be known for the horses. And in the Middle Ages, he has a church in England named after him. And it was real famous in the Middle Ages for people with sick horses to travel from all over the world and bring them to his church in England um, for them to be healed, hopefully. And so um, that's kind of how he goes down in history. His legacy is kind of the patron saint of horses. Who knows? Um, maybe he had this, this love of horses. Um, no, so, so as Hippolytus reads Daniel 6, particularly what we've read, okay, he's reading it. And what pops out to him, what he notices is that this seems a whole lot like what I experienced as a Christian. This sense of people being against me. This sense of plans being made to trip me up and to trap me. This sense of laws being enforced against me. 
it seems like some of the struggles that I've had and some of the struggles I've seen the church has had. He says, this sounds a lot like the church experience when, when they've been persecuted, when they have had people come against them and try to persecute them and try to get them to withdraw their faith and to stop believing and following Christ. And, and he read Daniel 6 as an allegory of, of spiritual warfare. So, so he read it as an allegory, which is you read a story and each part of the story, each character or action represents the sign or a symbol of something else that's true. So he saw this. Babylon in Daniel 6, he said, was a sign. It stood for the world. The kingdom of Babylon, the world that we live in. And he said, Darius, King Darius, he's a sign here of the devil, Satan, our enemy, the accuser. And he said, and these satraps and these, these presidents and prefects, they, they're a sign for, they're a symbol for, they stand for all those who try to oppose the church. All those who try to trip us up, who try to, to persecute us, who try to cause us to stop walking in the faith. He says there's this spiritual warfare that the Christians experience. And it's, it's similar to the, the experience that Daniel has here as, as this group of people wants to see him fail, wants to see him fall. Now, for the early church, when they've read allegories, they always wanted to make sure that it was actually somewhere else in the Bible. Right. And so for an early Christian who wanted to read a story as an allegory, they had to make sure that they weren't just creating out of the thin air, that that what they thought it was pointing to was actually in the Bible somewhere. Does that make sense? And so Hippolytus saw this all over the Bible, this sense of spiritual warfare. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives a, a, a perfect passage here about the, the reality of spiritual warfare that, that Christians live in, that Hippolytus is drawing on as he reads Daniel 6. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 1. Or verse 10, I'm sorry. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and that's shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So here's our first lesson from Hippolytus this morning, okay? Christians are in a real spiritual warfare. Christians are in a real spiritual warfare. If you read the scriptures, what they would have you understand reality as is a battlefield. <laughs> With, with certain spiritual agents opposed to what Christ wants to do and what he wants to do through you and in you and with you. Now, often in, in our kind of modern assumptions, right, we, we don't believe in anything that's beyond us. But, but Christians are supernaturalists, which means we believe there's more than what we can see. Right? It's sometimes odd for us, and sometimes it's, it's something we don't think about a whole lot. But if, again, if you read the scriptures, it's pretty clear. Um, the scriptures say there, there are other things in the world. They're the things that are happening. And, and the reality for Christians is that the world is not at peace right now. There are two kingdoms. And the kingdom of Christ is advancing. And the kingdom of the world is receding. But it's not going without a fight. 
There's this spiritual warfare that's present. And this is really important for you and I as Christians. Because if we don't understand that, we're going to act like it's peacetime. What happens when you act like it's peacetime, when it's really wartime, is you get taken out. I mean, you get, you get demolished. You get, if, if Daniel wasn't aware that there were people trying to trap him, and that the king was looking at him to see if he'd be faithful, who knows what he might have done. But he, he realized, I'm in a foreign situation. Not everyone here is on my team. I need to be sure I'm being faithful at all times. One of the biggest mistakes I think Christians have made throughout history, you see this as church history progresses, is confusing the warfare that Christians are in. So we often take this sense of spiritual warfare and we make it physical. We make it a reality with our brothers and sisters. Paul, I think, here is speaking very strongly against that. He says, our, our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? His message here is, is if at any point in time you think your enemy or what's wrong for you or for the world is another human being, has, has a body and bones and a human face, Paul says, you're wrong. That's not your enemy. If you spend your time attacking that, you'll be sorely disappointed. You could kill that person. But there's a bigger force at work that was just controlling that person, that was just working through that person, was using that person. He says, instead, attack the bigger things. Attack the principalities and powers. Attack the thoughts and the ideas and the spiritual realities behind situations. We're in spiritual warfare. And then, and then realize at all times, be aware that, again, we're not in peacetime. We're in, in wartime. We need to be aware of this. There's this spiritual reality. If you let your guard down, there's the chance that you're going to get run over. I mean, this is throughout the scriptures. The book of Hebrews, the whole book is, hey, don't stop running after Christ. Don't fall off. Don't be tempted. There will be situations that come your way that will try to trip you and try to trap you. But be faithful. Know you're in a war zone. Know who your king is. Know what your duties are. Be alert at all times. Persevere. Pray for each other. Help each other. If someone else goes down, don't let them be a casualty of war, right? No man left behind. Go get them. Bring them up. Stand together strong. Hippolytus says, I read this text. I see what's happening to Daniel. And it seems like an allegory for me. It seems like this represents the world I'm living in with all this, this, these, this warfare happening around me. So as we keep reading in the book of Daniel, we go back to Daniel 6. We'll pick it up in verse 14 where we left off. Daniel 6 verse 14 then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. So he doesn't actually want Daniel to receive this fate. The, his advisors kind of trip him, um, trick him into doing this. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's a law for the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And as the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. So apparently, yes, diversions brought to him during the middle of the night, but not tonight. Okay, he's got other things on his mind and, and slept, fled from him. He had a sleepless night worrying about Daniel. I've always thought that his, his words to Daniel right before he goes in the lion's den are kind of lame. Okay, I mean, he's pushing him in the lion's den. He's like, I really hope your God protects you. 
Right? I'm, I'm kind of stuck here. I'm kind of trapped in this. I don't want to do this. This is one of those situations where your words don't mean a whole lot to me right now. I'm, I'm going down the lines, and the picture we should have in our minds is of this kind of pit built into the ground. It seems kind of fantastical to us to have these lions, but apparently it was, it was fairly common back then. And, and you'd have a ramp that kind of is built in, you can close off, that you would put lions into it with it. And then kind of a manhole that you could take on and off where you could put people, right, who you did not want to be people anymore into the lion's pit. And this is Daniel's fate. I want to introduce you to our next church father this morning, okay? Um, it's a guy named Philip. You see him next on your worship guide. He has an interesting last name, okay? Melanchthon, okay? It's a kind of an interesting twist of syllables and, and um, uh, vowels and, and, and consonants there. He's a German. Um, he's a German name here. So Philip, for short, okay, we'll call him by his first name, Philip. He's a German reformer, okay? So think of the 15th, 16th centuries. And he was a man who worked with Martin Luther, if you're familiar with Martin Luther, he was the great Protestant reformer, okay? Um, kind of is responsible for Protestantism. If you're not Catholic, um, that's because of him and because of the work that they did. Um, if you've seen the movie, I don't know if you've even seen the movie, Luther, pretty good movie um, representing the, the events that occurred in his life. But he was a partner of Luther. He was a professor at the same university as Luther, Wittenberg. Um, and he was largely responsible for writing what we call the Augsburg Confession, which is the kind of grounding document of Protestantism. Um, so again, of, of the, the movement that came away from um, Catholicism. Now, what's interesting about my man Philip, okay, is what he looked like. Uh, as people will report to us, and since he didn't live that far ago, we have a lot of information about this guy. He was a dwarf, okay, or a little person, right? He could have had a TV show about him. Um, little Philip, big world, okay? Uh, he was, the, the text say he was dwarfing and misshapen. And so there's lots of paintings and drawings of him, and he looks dwarfing and misshapen, okay? Um, so like I said, church history is encouraging. If you look dwarfing and misshapen, you can be like, I'm the first one to be in the church and be dwarfing and misshapen. This was Philip. This was his role um, in the church. And, and Philip, for whatever reason, his body just didn't work right. I mean, obviously with the exterior experience, uh, appearance, but also, I mean, he was just in and out of ill health his whole life. I don't know if you've, you've known that person, or maybe that's been kind of your experience. But again, you're not going to be the first in the church to go through that. Philip was, was sick for most of his life, in and out of, of ill health, never really at 100%, but was able to do remarkable things for God. And he was known for being this kind of gentle man uh, who loved his wife and his kids. The big saying about Philip was if you went to find him, you'd find him with a baby in one hand and a book in the other. Um, he was just this old soul who loved to be around his wife and children, and he loved to study and read and contribute. So he was a good partner for Luther. If you know anything about Luther, Luther was not that gentle of a man. Okay, mm -hmm. Luther um, was very willing to insult and yell and do those kind of things. So he was a good kind of partner to offset him. Now, as he reads the book of Daniel, okay, as he reads Daniel 6, um, what we find is he reads Daniel, and he notices some different things that other people had noticed before. He says, wait a minute, Darius is sympathetic to Daniel. Darius doesn't actually want Daniel to die. If you look again in verse 14, the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored until the sun went down to rescue him. If you remember Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar does not act like this when the three friends get thrown into the fiery furnace. He gets more angry when they break his rules and they don't worship the statue. He excitedly throws them in. Darius, though, has this sense that he wants to protect Daniel. He's a ruler who's just gotten trapped in his own ignorance. And his own foolishness. <clears throat> and then he notices some things about Daniel. He says, Daniel, though, as he relates to this ruler, is loyal. Daniel never tries to fight the ruler. Daniel never tries to kill him. He's a good servant. He's faultless in, in Darius' eyes. And he's a faithful follower of the Lord. He never compromises his own beliefs. And so what he says, I've got a quote from him here. He says, in the face of the king, the lesson that he got was, a Christian must offer a loyal, nonviolent, 
but firm witness. And so the lesson we might learn from Philip this morning is that Christians are called to a faithful, nonviolent witness. Christians are called to a faithful, nonviolent witness. Now, if you've been here as we've gone through Daniel, this doesn't sound that unfamiliar to you. This is how I read some of these texts in the book of Daniel when you see people um, being martyred. The, the Christian's role in society, according to the scriptures, is not to rebel against kings. It's not to revolt against them. It's not to kill them. It's not to subvert them. It's not to go against them. It's not to insult them. It's not to make angry Facebook sasses about them. It's, it's none of those things. It's to remind them who's really in charge. Mm-hmm. Primarily by the way we live. I mean, we were talking about this in marriage, right? The world doesn't want to enforce maybe the church's views of marriage. And, and for some of us, this really gets us kind of upset. But Daniel teaches us it's okay to be aliens. It's okay to, to just be your group inside of a larger group that doesn't believe what you believe and act like you want to act. What we should do instead is, instead of trying to legislate right, or view marriage, we should show it. We should have beautiful marriages. We should have marriages that don't end in divorce half the time. Right? I mean, we should, we should have marriages that show off the beauty of what we believe so that the world around us would say, hey, something's going on there. And they might want to come hear about it. There's a big difference. And what, what Daniel reminds us and what Philip here sees is that Christians are called to be witnesses. We're called to be faithful witnesses. And when that collides with the law of the land, we're called to be faithful, even if it means suffering. There's this long tradition in the Christian church of this nonviolent suffering. You even see in big events in American history, right, with Martin Luther King and things of that nature. He sees this and he sees what the Christian's role should be in society. We don't rebel. We give witness to who God is and we, we show off what his kingdom looks like. What it looks like with a group of people who have been redeemed and made new and now look and act like the son um, incarnate. So we keep reading. Okay, verse uh, 19. At, day, uh, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. So he's been thinking about this all night, right? And first thing on his mind is, what's been happening to Daniel? As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I always wonder what's going through Darius's head at this moment, right? Is he, think, is he wondering, like, am I a crazy person for even asking this question? For even raising my voice in this den? There's, there's probably just parts. Right, scattered around in there. It's, it's been a whole night. No one's touched this. I wonder if anyone's around seeing you know, his expectation, his anguish about what was going to happen. And then I, I imagine that silence after he asked the question and how long it was before Daniel responds. He hears a voice. And then what that feeling is, right? I mean, the mixture of guilt and happiness and sadness and, and being horrified and overthrilled when all of a sudden you hear Daniel's voice go, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> And Daniel responds to the king. He says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And he shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones into pieces. Now, the, the narrative importance of these accusers going to the lions in is, is that um, the lions were hungry, right? I mean, it's not a case of Darius 
not wanting Daniel to be killed, so he goes in and feeds the lion as much as he can before Daniel gets in there. So he gets in there, and they're like, just leave us alone, right? It's nap time, we just ate. Or, like, did they drug the lions or beat them up so that they have no power? No, because as soon as you put some other humans in there, what happens? Right? I mean, they, they jump on them like they're supposed to. The lions tear them to pieces. It was the angel that shut the lion's mouth here. Now, I want to introduce, our, introduce you to our third church father this morning. His name is Jerome. Okay, Jerome, he's a, he's a very important church father. And when he reads this story in Daniel 6, he sees Jesus. And in fact, this is the most common way for early Christians to read Daniel 6. They read it and they just say, I'd love to talk about other things right now, but I, I have to talk about Jesus. I have to talk about what he's done and what he is doing for us and, and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Now, Jerome is a Latin church father, a very important church father. In fact, he is very important for how we got the Bible today in English. Um, so, I mean, it's quite a feat that we have English Bibles that we can read today. Um, and lots of people died so that you and I might have Bibles. I mean, it was a big, underground, dangerous movement for a while. Um, in fact, in much the same way that, that we celebrate people who have died for our country, right? I mean, what kind of community would it create if we celebrate people who have died so that we could read the Bible? If we remember those sacrifices as well, right? That, that men and women put their life on the line because they thought something powerful would happen if the everyday person could read these words. I've got a poster in my classroom of a, uh, it's Nazi propaganda poster, right? So it's a perfect conversation starter for parents, uh, sets the mood, right, for the classroom. And it's, uh, it gets better. It's a Bible with a bloody knife stabbed through the middle, okay? And it says on the bottom, this is the enemy. And you can see the swastika sign on the elbow pad, okay? And the, the point of the, the picture is, at least in my interpretation of my classroom, is that the Nazis understood that the scriptures contain words that would topple the regime over, if they couldn't control it. I mean, they understood that if people really started reading around in here, their loyalties might change, and they might stop being so willing to turn a blind eye to other things. They realized they had to control this. And this is what people like Jerome and others worked so hard for, for the common person to be able to read the Bible, because they knew that things might change. Right? It'd be really good for me if you couldn't read the Bible, and I could tell you this. Hey, actually, God says, you want to go to heaven... Mike needs a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> and you have no recourse, right? I mean, there's not. I guess, okay, give him Mercedes Benz, right? We've got the money in Sugar Land. All right, here's the Mercedes Benz. And then one day, imagine you can read the Bible, and imagine your shock when you read through it, and there's nothing about Mike or my Mercedes. And you're going to be like, I've been reading through this. I haven't seen that. We've been giving you cars for years, right? I mean, it, it, it changes things. It changes things, and it, it topples the, the system of power that might be in place. So Jerome, actually, his big part in this was he translated the Bible from Greek into Latin um, as the languages are changing of the cultures around him, and we call that the Vulgate. Um, and he wrote a lot. So that's just St. Augustine, who's this big early church father. Um, he's probably the second biggest writer in, in terms of the amount of literature we have. Now, two stories, about, two stories about Jerome I want to tell before we get into how he read Daniel 6, just because they're fun, okay? The first one is not real, or maybe not real. The second one is real. The first one is this kind of legend that grew up around Jerome, who's this brilliant guy. And again, even like while he's living, a legend, right? Um, the legend was this, that one day he was sitting in his classroom teaching, and a lion walked in, right? In connection with Daniel 6, right? A lion walks in, and sticks out his paw on Jerome's lap. And he grabs the paw, flips it open, and there's a thorn in his paw. And it's obvious to everyone that the lion is asking Jerome, this great man of God, if he would heal 
his paw. And so Jerome takes the thorn out, heals his paw, and then the lion becomes his like best friend. I mean, it's like a life of pie story, right? And the lion's always there in the, the classroom and kind of does his bidding and things of that nature. And, and if you know anything about how society works, right? I mean, sometimes these legends get built up around big teachers and big public figures, right? And it's just like, yeah, one time he said this, and one time he did this, and there's all these stories that emerge. And, and this was the kind of the big story around Jerome, is that the lion, right? His best friend lion, who he had healed that one day in class. Um, now, Jerome, despite being this brilliant man who people loved and had these legends created about him and things like that, he was also a man who knew defeat. And he knew, he knew what his sin was like. Jerome, one of the things um, that we know about him as he's communicated to his friends is that he struggled with lust his whole life. He, he always had this kind of intense struggle to control his, his sexual desires. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the men, right? I mean, this is someone, again, this is this great church father we can look at and realize this was a battle for him his whole life. And there's a story about Jerome, okay? So he's moved to a monastery to try to get his head right and try to focus. And he's walking down a garden path one day. He's praying, he's meditating, thinking about where his line is, okay? And all of a sudden, some nuns turn the corner and start walking towards him. And he's like, oh, no. Right? Some, some, some pretty nuns are coming. And so the nuns are walking his way, and he, like a good boy, okay, he see, makes eye contact and then bounces, right? I mean, he bounces his eyes and looks down and keeps walking. And in his mind, I'm sure he's like, where'd it go, right? Look at me. I'm pure. I'm keeping it real, okay? And, and, and then one of the nuns, as, as he tells his friends, one of the nuns, he doesn't know her, she just walks up and whispers something in his ear. It's the meanest thing anyone's ever said. She walks up and goes, if you were really a saint, you wouldn't have to bounce your eyes. And then just walks away. I'm like, oh, come on, right? He's trying so hard. He's doing so good. And she just, just kind of walks up and dags that one, right? Digs that one right in his ribcage. If you're really a saint, you wouldn't have had to bounce your eyes. And he's like, ah, right? I'm, I'm getting there. I'm working on it. Um, but Jerome is, is, is this man who did so much for the church and yet had these struggles that he, he, he battled with his whole life. And, and as he reads this text again, he sees Jesus in there. The early church, they saw Jesus everywhere. Both when they read the text and when they experienced life uh, outside of the church. They just saw Jesus. They saw shadows of the gospel everywhere they went. They took very seriously John five thirty nine, where Jesus says, You search the scriptures for eternal life, but you don't realize they're pointing to me. Right? All these stories, all these things, all these laws, all these words, ultimately are trying to get you to look at me. And trying to get you to worship me. And trying to get you to follow me. And so, so he sees Daniel praying in an upper room before a trial before temptation. And he says, hey, that's, that's crazy, because my Lord prayed in an upper room before his time of trial. And he prayed that he might be faithful. And he prayed for his friends and family. And then he sees, particularly in this pit, this lion's pit, he sees the work of Christ. So the early church believed that after Jesus died on the cross, he descended into hell, where he then defeated Satan took the keys of hell, defeated death, and then came back to life, right? Resurrected. In fact, in the early church, there's all these pictures of Jesus rising and gates are broken around him. These are the gates of hell being broken. He's got a key um, around his neck. He's got the key to death and to life. And then he's got Adam in one hand and Eve in the other, right? And he's bringing them up out of the grave. And they believe that this is what happened, okay? He died, he went to hell, and then kicked some butt, right? And came back up, resurrected, and said, I'm in charge, I've defeated death. I've defeated sin. I've paid the price for your sins. And these are my people. And they're not going to stay in the grave anymore. They're going to experience life and experience life with me. And, and when Jerome reads that Daniel goes into the lion's den, but he's not harmed. And he comes out of the lion's den. He says, let me tell you about Christ. 
Let me tell you about the one who, who's the, the truth that this is just a shadow of, who descended into hell on our behalf and rose again for our life. He said, he said Daniel's a type of Jesus. He's like a foreshadow, a prefiguring. The early Christians thought the Bible was one story. It was all connected. In fact, they thought all of history was connected. It was all one thing, and it was all orchestrated by God. So just like you read a story, and you get to the end of the story, and you find out, right, the butler did the, the murder. And then you go back to these first scenes with the butler, and you read them differently. They read this, this final scene with Christ. And when they went back to these earlier scenes, they couldn't help but see all these different ways in which it was almost like God was preparing them to understand Christ. With the sacrifices and with stories like Daniel and, and all these different things, God has been making a way, preparing them to be able to understand what he has accomplished with his son. Jerome reads this and says, this looks a lot like Jesus to me. And this looks a lot like the work he's accomplished on my behalf. As we finish off Daniel 6, we pick it up in verse 25. I'm sorry. So the lesson to learn here, right, on our worship guides, is Christians worship Jesus. The one whom death could not hold. Christians worship Jesus, the one whom death could not hold. As we finish off Daniel 6, verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Um, the, the last church father I want to introduce this morning as we, we close is a guy named John Chrysostom. Um, and he lived uh, around the same time as Jerome was born around 347 and, and, and died probably in the early 400s. Um, and he was known primarily for his preaching. So in fact, they, they had a nickname for Chrysostom. They called him Golden Mouthed. Um, because he, he just had this way with words and, and this way with rhetoric. In fact, I mean, still today his sermons, the way he turns phrases, it's just kind of like, whoa, you know, what happened? And the way he sets up a sermon and then just nails you at the end, right? I mean, it's just very powerful. And he was famous. I mean, just this real famous preacher even in his day. Now, I must say, Cyril of Alexandria, the guy I'm studying for my thesis, would be upset that I'm talking about Christians this morning. They had kind of a feud uh, during their lives. So, so he would be a little offended this morning, but um, Chrysostom has some great stuff around him. As he reads Daniel 6, he says, not only does Daniel look like a type of Jesus, he also looks like a type of us. It looks like what will happen to us too because of Jesus, because of his work on our behalf. He says, look at Daniel praying. Look at him focusing on God. Look at him focusing on his glory. Look at him trying to remain faithful. And then look at Daniel Go into the pit and come out of it. And Christian says, is that not what's going to happen to Christians? Aren't they not going to die but then be raised again and experience eternal life because of what Christ has done on their behalf? The lesson is Christians will be resurrected to enjoy eternal life. That's been defeated. That work of Christ is not just an interesting fact about Christ. It's something that applies to you and I. It affects the way we grieve. Paul says we don't grieve like those who don't have hope. We grieve like those who know that death's not the end of the story. Going into the lion's den is not the last thing that happens. Daniel comes out of the lion's den. He's protected because of his God. And then he lives differently. He's not afraid of death. You don't see Daniel cowering before he goes into the lion's den. Because he knows who his God is and he knows what his God will do for him. There's this traditional prayer that the early church prayed for people when they died. They said this, Lord, free the soul of the departed as you freed Daniel from the lion's den. 
This is the Christian's hope because of Christ's work on our behalf that one day we'll be raised because he's defeated death, because he's paid the price for our sin, because we've been invited into salvation. We've received grace. What happened to Daniel and what happened to Jesus will also happen to you and I. So this morning as we come to celebrate communion, we participate in something that John Chrysostom did, and that, that Philip did, and that Jerome did, and that Hippolytus did. They, they all came to the table, and they all took the bread and the wine, and they all said, we're part of this group. This is our identity. We're, we're in the church, and this is our Lord. And we're going to celebrate and remember that he was crucified and that he rose again. And we're going to remember that, that that brings us hope, and that brings us purpose, and that brings us meaning. And so this morning, in, in just a minute, we'll pray, and we'll invite you up to... To, to remember and to celebrate. Father, we love you. We thank you for the scriptures you've given us. We thank you for the, the men and women who've come before us, who have read them and who have served you, who have explored their depths. Father, we, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see you everywhere, whether it's at the movies or in the mall or in our homes or in the Old Testament, Father, that as we read, we'd see you. As we, we talk, we'd see you. That, that everywhere we look, because we're so focused on you and, and your grace and your work, that, that we would see examples and shadows. We pray that you would encourage us, Father, to, to live faithfully. We pray that you would help us to stand strong in our times of temptation. We pray that, that you would constantly cast our attention on your work, on your accomplishment on our behalf. And we pray that, that you would instill within us the hope of our future of those who will live forever um, because of the work that you have done, Father. We pray that this morning you would fill us up um, and you would transform us even for, further into um, people who bear your image and who are, are more able and joyful in following and serving you. We love you. It's in your son's name that all God's people said. Amen.